flooded it. Hey, you want to hear a funny story? Shut up and get out of the car. Director Steven Soderbergh says his 1998 film Out of Sight saved his career. After the success of his debut, Sex Lies and Videotape, Soderbergh went through a drought and needed a hit. This week, we discussed the terrifically entertaining Out of Sight, including its cast, led by George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, screenwriter Scott Frank's adaptation of the original Elmore Leonard novel, as well as the movie's brilliant use of color, music, and time shifting. We also know that even though Out of Sight wasn't a box office smash, it set up Soderbergh and Clooney for the hugely popular Oceans trilogy a few years later. You know, in a situation like this, there's a high potentiality for the common motherfucker to bitch out. So steady yourself as we play back the 1998 crime comedy Out of Sight. Your first thoughts, man, after seeing Out of Sight. I've been talking about it for years. Yeah, years, literally. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and singing its praises. But uh, what, what were your thoughts, you know, seeing the movie and walking away from it? You obviously told me you liked it, but we didn't go into any great detail. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you mentioned, you know, you had been talking about it for years. You know, as you are wont to do, and then as I am wont to do, it'll take me years to take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, got, we got a synergy going. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but yeah, the, the movie itself, you know, it first reminded me of, I'm putting in the mind of like um, those like Clark Gable movies from like the 30s, you know, like, Clark Gable and um, Claudette Colbert in uh, It Happened One Night, that kind of back and forth, you know, that romantic type of thing, right? Right, right, right. That's, that's instantly the vibe that I got with Clooney and Lopez, especially with Clooney, you know, who definitely has those qualities that, you know, uh, Gable had, you know, in those early um, 30s movies like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have this other element of like this crime element that adds like this verisimilitude to it, especially the parts with the uh, flashbacks to prison, you know, how he escaped, um, the sequences when he was inside, you know, all of those kind of are the flip side of it, but they all coalesce together to be very, very satisfying. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'll tell you, before I watched it, I was thinking, I kind of know what the plot of, you know, the movie was. I was like, oh, man, man, watch, watch this be some old whatever. I, you know, I was just had my own preconceived notions, but it definitely, you know, broke beyond those notions and it was very, very good. That's probably like the best thing I'd seen um, uh, Jennifer Lopez in, you know, maybe like aside from like Selena or whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, instantly, I was like, dang. That's a good performance by Lopez. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think for Lopez, my Lopez's tend to be Selena. Yeah. Out of sight. Mm. Um The Wedding Planner. Okay, okay. And then later on Hustlers. Her her last performance uh major her last dramatic performance in Hustlers was very good. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right. So um yeah, you know, the, the, you, you talk about Clooney and you make the comparison to it happened one night and, and this kind of uh, 40s era 
Um, like you're saying, not a romantic comedy per se, but like you're saying, this kind of back and forth cat and mouse dance, you know, will they, won't they, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of Clooney, Clooney was on ER for years and was super popular as a character on that show. And that show that show was super popular. It was probably one of the biggest shows of the day. But he wanted to be a movie star. He wanted to be an actor in feature films. And so at the time when this came out, he had done some feature films, but none of them had really landed and had really established him as a true blue movie star. He, you know, he had done, you know, Batman Forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had done uh, Perfect Storm. He was in... Um, he was in uh, the Peacemaker. He was in Peacemaker. He was in From Dust Till Dawn. From Dust Till Dawn kind of had a little bit of that, you know, with the Tarantino Robert Rodriguez connection. But it just, but it wasn't a big movie. It was more like you know people who were heads, mm-hmm. you know, saw this movie and, and dug it for what it was. And so, my understanding is is that Clooney at the time was a big fan of like James Cagney and those bad guys who were the central figures in movies like we've discussed previously, White Heat and Public Enemy and yeah. things of that nature. And so, um, his contract for to renew for ER was coming up. And it was still the biggest show in the country. And so everybody was telling him, if you renew this contract, because I think maybe he was making like $30,000 a week or something. They were like, y- y- you could get $100,000 a week easy. Yeah. You know, which was big money back in the late 90s. But he said, no, he didn't renew. He wrote it out. He wanted to be in feature films. And then this film comes along with Steven Soderbergh. And like you said, you know, he's kind of giving you Clark Gable old school movie star charm. He's all, you know, it, when he's not, you know, jumping out of a hole, you know, digging his way out of prison, <laughs> there's a portion of the film where he's wearing like a suit jacket and a white button down shirt. And he has a very kind of classic, charming, you know, Hollywood leading man vibe. And he's giving you, he's giving you that, that 50,000 megawatt smile. Oh yeah. Which is just working. Absolutely working. Oh yeah. So perpetually. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I was a big fan of this film. Um, you and I have discussed the Limey previously, mm, mm-hmm. and um, and I had I've seen a lot of Soderbergh's films, not all of them because he's too prolific. He makes too much stuff. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you can't you can't see it all. But the thing about this film is, is it had a budget of forty eight million dollars. It made seventy seven million in the theater, so it, it was successful, Ooh. but it wasn't a hit. Yeah, but it did set up Clooney to kind of be taken seriously as a leading man, and it has set Clooney and Soderbergh up both to later on, a few years later, to do Ocean's Eleven, which launches the Ocean's trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, and those were hugely popular and very, very successful. You know, and another thing to note as well this this movie came out in what I believe ninety eight, ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety eight, yeah. 98. Okay. So you're talking about the kind of the the tail end of that crest of like um, independent filmmakers who got into the studio system. You know, it wasn't quite this new, new wave. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But it was enough that you had these independent minded filmmakers coming into the studio system and making these films that really have an impact. And, you know, you have Soderbergh and Tarantino, you know, amongst others, you know, kind of riding that crest. And it's interesting to note kind of the similarity, you know, between those two, you know, both handling ensemble cast, um, both handling, you know, 
kind of adroit with stories of like, you know, the criminal underclass and this cat and mouse cops and robbers type of thing. You know what I'm saying? Probably more Soderbergh than Tarantino. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to note the similarities between those two, even using some of the same actors, you know, within their films as well, which may be a coincidence. Maybe, maybe not, you know, but I just think that it's interesting that when it came along in the latter part of the 90s, you know, that you do have that kind of um, correlation going on. You know, between those two. And not to mention also, too, using flashbacks and time shifting, which, you know, Tarantino uses it as literal stretches where he's telling a portion of the story out of sequence to how it happened in terms of the chronology of the characters, as opposed to Soderbergh, where he's using flashbacks and overlays audio and whatnot. So you're not exactly sure. Are we? T is this sequence we're watching in present day? Is this the first time? Uh, Jack Foley, who is George Clooney's character, is in prison. Is this the second time he's in prison? You're not exactly mm. sure, uh, you know, it, you know where you are, but you know, but it's used, I think, to great effect. Yeah, uh, and that's another similarity, I guess, in in their styles. But yeah, you're correct. The movie came out in 1998, and it is essentially a movie about a bank robber who's been a career bank robber. Never used a gun. He's robbed more banks than anybody in the United States, according to the FBI. And he's been in and out of prison most of his adult life. And so the movie opens with him, a prison escape that he's a part of with his uh, with his buddy, Buddy Bragg. And as they're as he's escaping from prison, they encounter this uh, this federal marshal and they take her hostage. He and the federal marshal, who's a who's a woman, they have this very instant romantic connection. Yeah. And then throughout the rest of the movie, as Adrian mentioned, there's kind of a back and forth, will they, won't they kind of a thing where their their paths are almost crossing, but not quite. And it ultimately leads to their paths crossing in a romantic sense and also too in an ultimate sense mm. in terms of the uh, the finality of the uh, of the story. But um, this movie is cool. It's sexy. Uh, it has lots of swagger, as the kids used to say a couple of years ago. <laughs> but it's also very dark and violent and, and, and really chilling in places in terms of uh, the introduction of uh, Kenneth Miller and, uh, and Maurice or Kenneth and, uh, and Maurice and, uh, and Glenn and, and, and White Boy Bob. White Boy Bob. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think and I don't know if I mentioned this earlier or not, but. You know, at the time, he was a he was a young filmmaker coming into the studio system. He had a huge hit with his first film, which was Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm -hmm. um, and he was kind of seen as kind of a wunderkind. You know, it was like, oh, wow, this guy is handling really weird but but weighty material. Um, and, and people loved that film. But after that, he had a few bombs, you know. Um, he made some smaller films that, that didn't get any attention. And so he says this film really saved his career. Because he knew he needed to have he, he needed a hit, yeah. but he also just wanted a movie that had name actors in it and that people would go see and might have a chance of becoming a popular film. And that's essentially what you know what this movie brought him. You know, it it did well enough with with an audience, but it also was a signal to agents and producers and other Hollywood figures that Clooney, you know, A, that, uh, that Clooney could be a leading man, but also that Steven Soderbergh wasn't kind of like a uh, a one-hit wonder, so to speak. Yeah, and, it, and it's funny because, you know, there's the, you know, oft-repeated saying of, you know, one for them and one for me. 
is almost the ratio for Soderbergh was one, two, three, four for me. Yes. One for y'all. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, but he does that. He does that with a certain kind of uh, specificity that most directors don't. You know, uh, Soderbergh can edit his films. Mm. He's he is famous for editing his own trailers. Yeah, you told me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He edits. Sometimes he'll edit his own trailers. So and he he is constantly experimenting. He's constantly doing different things. He's constantly experimenting with the form, with the format, with the methodology. You know, uh, he shot one one of his films in the last seven or eight years, maybe ten years. He shot all on iPhones and then edited using, you know, software and whatnot just to see if he could do it. And he did it, you know. Oh, wow. So he really is kind of like a wonder kid. You know, if that's the literal translation of Wunderkind, I assume it is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he literally he literally is that in, in many, many ways. But, you know, that and that, that that's so attractive to me because, you know, he is I, I know he didn't write, you know, out of sight. Scott Frank did. Correct. You know, and did a marvelous job. Mm-hmm. That's what he's known for. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what's kind of getting me more and more attracted to um, Soderbergh through through your, you know, recommendations is the fact that he is an auteur. I mean, he can obviously direct, but he can also write. He can also edit. You know, he can do all this stuff. And, you know, his bigger films, you know, like the Oceans trilogy and, you know, this and amongst others, Magic Mike and so Traffic. forth. Traffic. You know. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's right. See, mm-hmm. he is too prolific, yo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's just so interesting how much he is an auteur and how much you don't really see that, you know, as much these days. You know, it's either you direct very well or you write very well. You know, very rarely in the twain do they meet, you know, except in the exception of somebody like a Tarantino or something. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and he's talked about that. The fact that he says, you know, he is a filmmaker and he's a director first and he can write but he said that part of the problem and this is one of those things kind of like the whole prince problem where prince wanted to put out an album every year yeah you know and his label warner brothers is like look we can't market an album every year you're too big of a, of a, of a star <laughs> for us to market yeah. one of your albums every year we you'd be the only thing we would be paying attention to <laughs> right but clooney i mean excuse me soderberg has said that um, if he writes and he directs, then he can basically only make a movie like every four to five years. Mm. And he and he wants to be busier than that. So that's why he brings in screenwriters. He'll develop something, but he'll bring in screenwriters to go ahead and, and do the screenplays so that he can be quickly involved in the production, quickly involved in the casting and can get the, you know, get the thing off the ground as fast as possible. Um, so, and I think that's actually a, a an interesting thing for a filmmaker to admit that, Hey, I, I am equally as interested in quality as I am in quantity. I want to be busy. I want to make a lot of films. If you've ever followed, um, he apparently has like a video diary or something that he posts online where he'll talk about the movies he's watching and the books that he's reading and and just the, the media that he's consuming. And there are some days where he'll watch four movies in one day. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Dang, that's living the life. Yeah, you know, so you got to think he's probably got like a nice home studio with a screen and, you know, and the the, uh, the, the stadium seating. And, you know, he might have like a little cup of brown and he's, you know, he's he's watching movies all day, you know. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds like the life to me. 
Um, That's all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this film's cast is pretty awesome. And you mentioned, you know, a large ensemble cast before in the comparison with uh, with uh, uh, Tarantino. Tarantino. With Tarantino. Yeah. You know, George Clooney is the star. He plays Jack Foley, uh, the lead character, along with Jennifer Lopez, who plays uh, Karen Sisko, the federal marshal. Right. And I think other than that, you've got, you know, you've got Ving Rhames, who plays Buddy Bragg. Ving, prior to this movie, had done, of course, Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. where he plays Marcellus Wallace. But he was also in Dave. Remember Dave with Kevin Klein? Oh, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver, he was in that. He was in MI2 before this, and he was in Rosewood before this. Well, MI2 comes after this. Does it come MI2 after this? MI2 is 2000. Okay, okay, yeah. my bad, my but, bad. But he was, but he was, but was he in the first, he was, was he in the first Mission he was, Impossible? No, he was introduced in the second film as the, as the tech guy, as the tech guy. Gotcha. So you're exactly right. But he was in Rosewood, so he was, he was kind of busy as an actor and definitely had Hollywood interest from his, portray, his portrayal of Marcellus in Pulp Fiction, you know, most especially. Don Cheadle had done Boogie Nights, uh, he had done Devil in a Blue Dress. Yes. And he, and he also was in Rosewood. That's that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Cheadle had done a ton of TV and he'd done a couple of music videos before this movie. He sure did. I, I remember him being in an Angela Winbush music video. You know the one I'm talking yes. about? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say, wasn't he in a uh, Paula Abdul video too? I think, He's one of the background dancers? I think you're right. I think you're mm-hmm. right. Yes. I think you're, straight up. Straight up. I think you're yes, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All in the camera. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Straight joking. Uh, <laughs> and then the uh, the screenwriter, Scott Frank, had, had written Little Man Tate, uh, Malice, and he'd also done Get Shorty, which was another Elmore Leonard adaptation. Hold up. Malice as in Paul Newman's Malice? No, Malice as in... Bill Pullman, Nicole Kidman, and Alex Bal- Alec Baldwin. Oh, okay. That okay. one, that malice, yeah. Gotcha. But uh, but the rest of the cast is fantastic. Uh, Isaiah Washington is super menacing and scary. Yes. And rapey. Uh, mm-hmm. Steve Zahn is absolutely hilarious as Glenn Michaels. Um, you have Catherine Keener as Adele. Albert Brooks as Richard Ripley, a.k.a. Dick the Ripper. Yes. Uh, Luis Guzman as Chino and a then unknown Viola Davis, Viola Davis as Moselle Miller. Yeah. Uh, and then Dennis Farina as Jennifer Lopez's dad. And then Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. Uncredited along with Samuel Jackson, uncredited, but Michael Keaton uncredited playing Ray Nicolette, his character from Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown, which yes. is also based on an Elmore Leonard novel, uh, Rum Punch, I believe it is. That's right. And I think they were actually editing Jackie Brown at the time when they were making this film. Hmm. And then they asked, hey, can we use this character since he's mentioned in this book? Can we use the character? You know, and then they say, okay, well, can we use Michael Keaton? And I think Tarantino had to write a letter on behalf of uh, the filmmakers of Soderbergh and his producers and say, hey, until uh, Miramax, I think it was Miramax who did uh, Jackie Brown, correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And told Miramax, yeah, don't charge him any money. Just let him do it. Because, you know, Tarantino is a fan of cinema. He he knew that having this connection and this <laughs> and this kind of overlap would be fun and interesting. And he he went he went for it, yo. So I think that's really cool. And then also, too, I don't want to leave out my man Paul Calderon as Raymond Cruz in this movie. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was so good to oh, see him. Man. And I, 
and I have to admit, like like uh, like Tarantino, he is a very familiar face when he shows up. I'm like, oh man, that's Paul Calderon. That's yeah. uh, <laughs> Jules Winfield, our man in Amsterdam. This <laughs> is Vega. Get on in here. We get them clothes, man. <laughs> Oh, man. And again, like you're saying, man, that is so cool, you know, that those two, quote unquote, universes, if you will, kind of, you know, the Soderverse and the Tarantinoverse kind of collided. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, it's like it's crisis on Infinite Earths, yo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yo. Crisis on Cinematic Earths. <laughs> but, but, but super, super duper cool that uh, that they did that. And I love when that happens. I'm a, I am a fan of, yeah. of uh, of the idea that you know these movies don't have to be separated by studios and you know and proprietary ownership of the of the license or these characters or whatever that they can kind of intermingle and uh and kind of cross over a bit but yeah um i, I i've got to say just in terms of this film crackling dialogue you know oh, smoking hot dialogue scott frank is definitely the goat one of the things I really loved about the film was the opening scenes, which, you know, as I mentioned before on our prison ep- prison movies episode, I love a good prison break. Mm-hmm. But I also love the whole opening sequence where he comes out of the building and he snatches his tie off and he throws it on the ground and you don't quite know what's going on. And then eventually you realize, oh, what's actually supposed to be happening? And Scott Frank says that that was actually a nod to uh, the opening sequence in Dog Day Afternoon, the propulsiveness of it. Ah, okay, uh, yeah. Um, that sequence in terms of the bank robbery actually happens in the middle of the book, but he moved it to the front so he could kind of give that uh, give that same uh, dog day afternoon energy to it. Yeah, you know, and it sets you up where you don't quite know what's going on and what's happening, and you know why is this guy so pissed off? And then you know he walks over to the bank and then proceeds to rob it without a gun. You know, and, and you know what's funny It's like when that happens, I you know. I didn't know at first it's like, you know, Clooney's coming out like a disgruntled office worker, like his last day at the job. Like, you know what? Fuck this job. I can't. I hate it. I hate this. You know? And then they go back and kind of set everything up. And it just seamless how, okay, oh, that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like Soderbergh has such a handle on the cinematic language that he flawlessly gets you into that story. You know, Mises scene, I think. I think that's I think that's the the terminology I'm looking for. Okay, Mises scene, something like that. Like basically, it means in the middle of a scene. You know, you come in in the middle of it, and it's just great how that opening is perfect in terms of just get, just pulling you in. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't look away. You're thinking about man, what's going on with this? And then just the whole cinematic language of him being a grifter, him looking around, kind of. He doesn't have to say much, but. His grifter mind is putting stuff together, how he can work it out on the fly. You know what I'm saying? Like, he just sees some random dude trying to apply for a loan with a bank president. And he's like, you see that guy over there? That guy over there? If you don't give me the money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's going he's gonna to do this. You know what I'm saying? And, and the dude is none the wiser. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just great. It's just great, man. How can I help you, sir? Really? See the man talking to your bank manager has his case open. Oh, that's Mr. Gwyndon, one of our assistant managers. Our manager is Mr. Schoenbett. He's not in today. But you see the man with the briefcase? Yes. That's my partner. He has a gun in there. 
If you don't do exactly what I tell you, or if you give me any kind of a problem at all, I'm going to look over at my partner, and he's going to shoot your Mr. Gwyndon between the eyes. All right, now take one of those big envelopes and put as many hundreds, fifties, and twenties as you can pack into it. Nothing with bank straps or rubber bands. I don't want any dive packs. I don't want any bait money. Start with the second drawer, and then the one over there underneath the money counter. It's okay. Come on, Loretta. The key's right there next to you. There you go. No bills off the bottom of the drawer, please. Is this your first time being around? Oh, you're doing great. Just smile, Loretta, so you don't look like you're being held up. Got a very pretty smile. It's the twenties, give me the twenties. I'll take those. There you go. You put those in my pocket. There you go. I had to give my partner a sign. Now that's good. Now he's going to wait thirty seconds until I'm out of the building. Make sure you haven't set off the alarm. If you have, he's going to shoot you, Mr. Gwendon, between the eyes. Okay. Right. I think that'll do it, Loretta. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. And, and the idea that um, Clooney's character as Jack Foley is an excellent bank robber, not necessarily because robbing banks is super tough, but he's an excellent bank robber because he is a good reader of people. He knows the correct teller to go to. Yeah. He knows the guy sitting there with the bank with the bank manager is going to be sitting there for long enough for him to go ahead and, 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 and execute his plan. And he does so without a weapon, and he walks right out, but of course he gets in his car his car won't start, and he ends up going back to prison. And so the movie is essentially him him dealing with prison in two sections. One, he's in there the first time with uh, Richard Ripley and with Buddy and with Glenn Michaels and with other figures and with Snoopy and uh and, and Snoopy's boy. Yeah. Uh, played by Don Cheadle, and he makes friends with Ripley and Ripley, basically, who is a, a millionaire who's embezzled a bunch of money, somehow ended in gin pop in some maximum security prison. And he basically tells Clooney after Clooney kind of saves him from getting eaten up by, uh, by Maurice and his, uh, his thugs. By Maurice. He tells him, Hey, look, you know, when you get out, you know, come see me, I'd like to hire you for my company. And so Ripley gets out of prison first. Clooney gets out after him, goes to visit Ripley. And that's when Ripley tells him, Hey, look, I'm gonna give you a security guard job. You're gonna have to work your way up. And that's when Clooney goes out pissed off. And then he robs another bank ends back up in prison and then ultimately breaks out uh, with and, and, and meets Karen Sisko. But yeah, the scene when he breaks out where he comes out of the hole, he's covered in mud and Karen Sisko's got the two, the shotgun on him and then buddy comes up behind her and they snatch the shotgun and then they put her in the trunk of the car and then Clooney gets in with her. Yeah. And then buddy drives off in her car. And that's when you have the magic scene where their chemistry mm. either has to be immediate or the movie falls apart. They shot that scene. They shot it like 45 times because what? Yeah. They said they shot it 45 times because he wanted to do it as a one shot, but it was too oh. boring. It was too boring for yeah. the audience. And so, you know, they have one camera and they're just looking at them laying in the same position as opposed to a two shot where one is over Clooney's shoulder and you see Jennifer Lopez's face and you see how, you know, really how attractive and how radiant she is. And then you see him over her 
and he and you can still see that smile and he's tapping her on her leg while he's telling the story. Yeah. And that scene has to work in order for you to believe the rest of the movie that these people have made a connection and that they actually kind of want to see each other again, not in a professional capacity as federal marshal and as bank robber, but as man and woman who, you know, clearly there's there are sparks for. Them. Hey. In my bag in the car. Boy, it stunk in there. I believe it. You're ruining a $900 suit my dad gave me. Yeah, it went great with that 12 gauge, too. Why would someone like you become a federal marshal? The idea of going after guys like you appealed to me. So, was that? Guys like me? Let me tell you something, even though I've been celibate lately, I'm not gonna force myself on you. I've never done that in my life. You wouldn't have time anyway. We come to a roadblock, they run the car and find out in about five seconds who it belongs That's to. That's if they get set up in time, which I doubt. If they do, we're gonna be looking for a bunch of little Latin fellas. A big black guy driving a Ford. Must be quite a pal. Risk his own ass like this. Buddy? Yeah, he's a good guy. Back when we jailed together, he used to call his sister every week without fail. She's a... Uh, uh, Born again Christian, you know, she does bookkeeping for a televangelist. You'd call her up, you'd confess his sins, you'd tell her whatever bank he happened to rob at the time. <laughs> Buddy, that is given name? One I gave him, yeah. So what's your name? Be in the paper tomorrow anyway. Jack Foley. You probably heard of me. Why are you famous? The time I was convicted in California, the FBI told me that I'd rob more banks than anybody in the computer. How many was that? Tell you the truth, I don't really know. Started when I was 18 years old. Driving for my Uncle Cully and his partner, Gus. So basically, you're saying you spent half your life in prison? Basically, yeah. I go back, I do 30 years, no time off. Can you imagine looking at that? I don't have to. I don't rob banks. You know, you don't seem all that scared. Of course I am. You don't act like it. What do you want me to do, scream? I didn't help much anyway. No, I'm just gonna sit here, take it easy, and wait for you to screw up. <laughs> like my and that's the one thing, I, I love this movie, and, and, I, and I forgive the movie for it, but in actuality, that probably wouldn't have happened as quickly, but like you said, the rest of the movie, you know, depends on the fulcrum of that scene. Right. Like, it has to work, and it does. Incredibly so. So it's like, on the basis of that scene, you believe everything else thereafter. Like, the whole near misses of them seeing each other, you know, in terms of like, that, that's, wait a minute, was that Karen? No, we gotta go. Did, we gotta go, Jack. Did, did, he, did what, she wave? I think she waved. Did he wave? You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and yeah. to your point in terms of believability, I mean, they actually kind of forecast that because they're talking about Three Days of the Condor with... Uh, with Robert uh, Redford and and Faye Dunaway, and Faye Dunaway, and she says, "Yeah, I just couldn't really buy the whole idea of them getting together so quickly." Yeah, and then that that kind of is 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 kind of That's a that meta. Yeah, meta, you know, they're speak, kinda, yeah. speaking to their own relationship in a way. Um, but um, oh, before we get too far into it, we forgot to mention Nancy Allen as Midge is part of the cast. That's right. Murphy, Murphy. <laughs> 
Lewis. Lewis. <laughs> yes, yo. And from Dress to Kill and from Carrie, yo. That's I was right. like, oh, man. And, and Blowout. And yeah. Blowout. Nancy Allen. Yeah, De Palma's girl. Exactly. Well, exactly. De Palma's girl. <laughs> but let me ask you this, man. The the thing, one of the things that I really liked about this movie, and it was certainly, this was fodder for many movies from the 90s, where you would have these kind of, and maybe post-pulp fiction more than anything else, where you have these kind of, mm. these soundtracks with these kind of offbeat choices, you know, the Isley Brothers and and and, and other things like that, and even the tone of the music where it's this kind of groovy kind of, acid jazz or trip hop kind of things, you know, um, Mm -hmm. but also the use of color in the movie, you know, all the shots in Miami were very colorful and lots of pastels and pinks and oranges and uh, turquoises and in these rich blues and teal greens and whatnot. And then by the time you get to Detroit, when you get to Detroit, go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to get to Detroit. It's like, it feels cold. It might not have been, it might've been all fake snow, but you feel it. It's all dark, dark earth tones and blues. Even in the club, everything's dark and subdued, yeah. greens and blues. So you're like, man, yeah. Yeah, e- excellent use of color by, you know, Soderbergh and his DP. I don't know who the DP was, mm. but um, but yeah, like, you know, in the beginning of the film, you know, Karen is wearing like brown, tan, and, and with highlights of orange. And by the end of the movie, she's wearing black and gray and white. Um, and like you said, it's as if when they get to Detroit, all of the color drains out of the film. And like you said, you do feel cold. You do feel the, the desolation of a, of a Detroit or a Midwest winter uh, with that use. And then also like, you know, the music shifts, you know, so the music becomes a bit more urbane and a bit more less like there's like there's salsa music and other things when they're in Miami. Mm-hmm. And then by the time they get to Detroit, it's the Isley Brothers. It's uh Fight the power. Fight the power. You know, so they're they're really they're really dig, <laughs> digging into digging into that, which is uh which was definitely cool to see. You know, I, you know, speaking of music, man, I don't know if it was this movie or what, but like I I recall hearing that song um just in a lot of trailers in the late 90s. And because there's a certain aesthetic that the movies of that time were trying to get like that cool. And that's the best way you can say it. Like there's cool cast, like stuff like, you know, get shorty or um, be cool, which comes later. But things like that, where there's this ensemble cast of these very um, desperate personalities, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And they're trying to give you this, this um, element of like, oh, this is hip. This is cool. You know, everybody has their own type of thing going on. And that (laughs) type of music would kind of solidify that, you know, because that music itself is kind of, out of step with that time, even though it makes a comeback in that, in that time, you know, I I would agree with that. And I think also to the, uh, the idea of the music kind of diffusing some of the tension. I mean, Mm. this movie is listed as a crime comedy. I guess that's an accurate hyphened, you know, uh, in terms of describing the genre, but the music does kind of act like a, Oh, okay. Like now, I'm back to I'm I'm less tense, and I kind of snap my fingers to the Isley Brothers or to <laughs> Carlos Santana or to whatever. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. um, you know, to to uh, any of those things, and it is does act a bit like a uh, uh, like a release, so to speak. But I found an article I was uh, online. 
at a website called The Dissolve, and they were talking about this movie, and they were talking about it. This was maybe back 10 years after on the movie's 10-year anniversary. I guess this is its uh, 25th anniversary? Yeah. 1998? Yeah. This was around the, uh, the 10th or the 15th anniversary of the film, but the writer says, and I quote, He's talking about Jack Foley, the character that George Clooney plays. He says he's an unrepentant bank robber who's walked away from chances to change because that would force him to alter something fundamental about his character. Mm. Seeing him at different stages in his life reveals both how much the code he lives by matters to him and how likely it is that he'll ever change. Karen isn't given Karen isn't given flashbacks, but the film similarly establishes her as a person defined by her job. At the end of the day, or in the case, in this case, at the end of the film, he's a crook and she's a cop, and they're going to do what their callings force them to do, even at the expense of their own happiness. Though, an epilogue added at the end of the film leaves the door open a crack in a way that the novel does not, quote unquote. Yeah. And uh, and I and that was I thought that was an accurate description of the idea that you know this character of Foley, he's a career criminal. He's never going to be anything else. I mean, he's clearly supposed to be almost 40 or 40 years old at, at the point when they when they meet. So yeah. if he was going to change, it's either going to happen now or it's going to it's not going to happen at all. And she's definitely someone who is defined by her job. Her job is how she knows who she is. And uh, and her father even scolds her because he says she's always falling for the wrong guy. She's always falling for the bad boy, the person, even the bad boy, Ray, Ray Collette, you know, the cop that she's dating, he's married. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's being disloyal to his wife and, uh, in Foley, you know, he's not married per se, but he is, he also has a, you know, essentially he is devoted to this life of crime and he's never really going to turn away from it. It's just, he's drawn to people that she can't have. Um, so I thought that was, that was a really cool assessment. Um, Couple of couple of trivia bits I found. All right. Um, casting wise, Sandra Bullock was almost in the running to play Karen Cisco. Yeah, I don't know if that would have worked. Nah. Well, Soderbergh says that she and Clooney had chemistry, but he said it wasn't for this movie. Hmm. Okay. He says okay. he says they read together. They definitely had chemistry, <laughs> but not for this movie. And Jennifer Lopez and he he said the chemistry was was spot on. Whoever had the rights to this and whatever studio was going to adapt it, they had offered it to Cameron Crowe, Barry Sonnenfeld, mm. Ted Demi, and Sidney Pollack, and they all passed on directing the film. Hmm. Hmm. Which I thought was, you know, Cameron Crowe, I don't know, Barry Sonnenfeld, maybe, Ted Demi, probably so. It would have been a different movie. Way different, yeah. Yeah, it would have been a different movie. And Sidney Pollock would have given it, you know, maybe more of that 70s just, vibe, yo. <laughs> exactly. Just. <sighs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Supposedly. So, you know, there's there was a point in the movie where Clooney is playing basketball with some of the other prisoners. Yeah. And, and he looks around. And he starts looking at the old timers who are there and he realizes, OK, this is where I'm headed. And. He's also feeling his own age because in the scene he's supposed to be kind of getting beaten in basketball by the younger basket by the younger prisoners. Now, yeah. for anyone who knows, George Clooney in real life is a great basketball player. And and basically he had to play poorly for the movie. <laughs> and the inmates heckled him for it, saying, Hey, what's wrong, Batman? You can't jump that high? What's wrong? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. George was like, "Hey, hey, Steve, turn that, turn, turn, turn that camera, camera off for no, a minute." No, 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 no. Oh, 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 all that fuck shit you was talking, right? All that fuck shit you was talking. <laughs> <laughs> and 
then whoop that ass. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Also, too, uh, Buddy Bragg in the novel, uh-huh. I believe, is written as, as kind of like a like a like a redneck character. OK. But they cast, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Ving Rhames, they cast him as the character. I don't know if the character was equally as kind of sensitive and had this kind of like Jiminy Cricket kind of relationship with uh, with Jack Foley in the book as, as he does in the movie. But um, but that's definitely, you know, Ving Rhames is, you know, I called my sister last night. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, she, she want to know if Buddy going to fuck up, you know, <laughs> and he's <laughs> talking to his sister and then but still living, basically living a life of crime. Yeah. Um, this movie came out in the summer, which was bad marketing for a film that kind of ends in with a Detroit winter. You know what I mean? Mm. And it didn't, it didn't quite work, but ultimately Elmore Leonard, who wrote the novel and wrote, you know, many novels, uh, uh, in this, in this same uh, genre, he liked this adaptation. He liked the changes that Scott Frank made. Um, he encouraged him to make changes that would make the movie, you know, better and would make it a better adaptation. In the uh, Scott Frank says that in the Elmore Leonard's book, he says the book is really about Karen Sisko. He says, but her character in the book doesn't change much. But he said, reading Jack Foley's characters, Foley's character was uh, was sadder and was more interesting, uh, which led Frank to kind of move in that bank robbery scene to the front of the movie uh, instead of in, in the middle of the movie where it is in the novel, so that he could really tell Jack's story and tell her story at the same time. Um, so, um, and, and again, one of those things where when you're taking something from one medium to the next, it's just not always going to translate, you know, you're, you're going to want to make changes and, and want to make, uh, and make edits. Question. Um, is, is Get Shorty also an Elmore Leonard adaptation? Yes, it is. That's interesting. So you have, you know, Rum Punch, which obviously what Jackie Brown was adapted from, you have this, mm-hmm. and then you have Get Shorty. I didn't realize until just now that Elmore Leonard was kind of a, a hot. He was what Stephen King was to the 80s in terms of having all of these works being adapted in like a big chunk at one time, perpetually almost. Mm-hmm. And then you have in the 90s, the late 90s, you have that same situation with Elmore Leonard. You know, that, that's very interesting. Yeah. And I, and I guess you kind of see where writers, you know, who are prolific and who have a certain amount of, of, of success, you see things that they're doing become adapted. You know, you saw that with uh, Terry McMillan at a point. You saw that with, uh, of course, um, um, The Rainmaker and uh, A Time to Kill. Oh, John Grisham. John Grisham, Grisham. of course, yeah. and Clancy. Um, yes, and there are yeah. there are others who have who have had that uh, who have had a, a similar similar success uh, as well. The, the last bit I want to mention in terms of trivia is is there's a line at the end of the movie where there's the big standoff in Ripley's mansion where Maurice and Kenneth and white boy Bob and Clooney as Jack Foley and Buddy have basically home invaded uh, the mansion and they're trying to find these diamonds that Richard Ripley has hidden in the house and everything has gone is gone you know everything has gone haywire. Foley's had to kill Kenneth. And then he faces off with Maurice and Maurice in the film is a former boxer mm-hmm. and he's a boxing fan. He's a boxing coach. So Clooney has his gun on him and he asks him, he says, Hey, yeah, you never shot anybody. Have you? He said, yeah, not until recently. He said, yeah. You ain't never shot a gun before, have you? Not until recently. No. You a little nervous? A little bit. Yeah. You know, uh, 
A situation like this is a high potentiality for the common motherfucker to bitch out. So I figure why take a chance. <laughs> and then from there, you know, he, he clocks Clooney and then they start fighting and they start fighting for the gun. And that's, you know, the final the final moments of the movie. But yeah, he ad libbed that line. Which is oh, the wow. which is a great line. A situation like this has a high potentiality for the common motherfucker to bitch out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, great, 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 great film. Um, I consider this, and you tell me what you think. All right. I think Out of Sight and The Limey too, to some extent, but Out of Sight mm-hmm. definitely is in the same vein of uh, movies like uh, The Asphalt Jungle. You know, mm. from back in the fifties, which I don't know if you knew this. The tagline for the Asphalt Jungle was "The City Under the City." No, man, that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that, yeah. that was the tagline <laughs> for that. But but movies like Asphalt Jungle, The Sting, mm. uh, The Color of Money, yeah, uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, in a way, you know, robbery heist, crime fiction, yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit of sorcerer because you know it had like a guy who was considered a movie star at the time in the center of it. Uh, Robert Sh- uh, Rushider, you know, and sorcerer. Yeah. Heat. Romeo is bleeding with Gary Oldman and Lena Olin. Um, certainly Jackie Brown. Did you ever see Rounders? This is kind of in the same Rounders with uh it- with, with the with the with the card playing with Edward Norton. Edward and Norton stuff? and Matt Damon. I have not. I need, uh, that's on my list, though. Yeah, you should check it out. It's very, very good. It's very good. Um, and uh, Matchstick Men. Did you ever see Matchstick Men? That's um, Nicholas Cage, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, S- Sam, Sam, directed Sam by Rockwell? Ridley Scott with Sam Sam Rockwell and Allison Lohman. Very good movie. Okay. Okay. Very good movie. If you like, you know, heist, grifter, confidence man, confidence woman movies, it's definitely that. There's another one in the '90s, Confidence with Ed Burns. And Andy Garcia and Rachel Weiss, hmm. Dustin Hoffman, and Morris Chestnut. Oh, okay. So that one is that one is actually pretty decent as well. But what are some other films that are, that you would kind of put this film in the category of? You know, you named most of them, and I was going to ask in 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 uh, response to that, what do you think it is? I mean, uh, we may answer our own question, but what do you think it is uh, as far as like the attraction to? You know, these type of movies like Out of Sight and the ones that we've named, you know, to like that grifter element, you know, to where, you know, is it the attraction of wanting to see if they can get away with it? Is it that uh, vicariousness of what would I do if I was in that situation? Because those type of movies, when they're done well, they are done well and people really respond to them. You know, those seem to be like, Real classics, yeah. if you will. What, what, what do you think it is? Many of these movies, I think, would be what, what you would call your dad's favorite movies, you know. Um, and I think also, too, kind of like what we mentioned about prison movies, where the, the vicarity, if that's even a word, uh, the vicarity of seeing a life that you don't live that's on the fringes, and you see this person kind of riding the razor's edge of almost getting caught and almost, you know, getting away with it. Um, you see them not having to go through conventional means and through the system to get what they want. And I think secretly all wish our lives were easier in that way. I wish I could get money easier. I wish I could get um, possessions easier. I wish I could gain access easier. Hell, I wish I could get sex easier than, you know, than, than, you know what I'm saying? Like the things in life that we want 
to be able to attain those things without having to go through the conventional avenues and the conventional means. And we see people who have not only done this, but have done it so well that they've made it their lives and their professions. Yeah. Remember when we talked about that movie with, uh, with, uh, John Cusack and, 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 wait, wait, Angelica Houston. Yeah. The, uh, the LA in the, the, LA, the drifters, the, dr- the grifters. Is it the drifters? The grifters. Yes. Yeah, the grifters. The grifters. The yeah. grifters. Yeah. You know, where he's living this modest life as this grifter or whatever, but he's got hundreds of thousands of dollars hidden behind these paintings in his apartment, you know, waiting for, I guess, the moment where he can kind of walk away from the life or whatever. But I mean, how long is that money going to last you before you have to kind of go back to it? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, is a lot of these movies also have that um, pragmatism of, many of the protagonists realize where this life leads to either getting caught, getting stuck back in the joint or you being hemmed up, possibly even killed. And the best of these movies, you know, really make that uh, uh, a constant reality, a constant fact that is behind their shoulders, you know, as they're committing these crimes or going about these heists, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And when you think back, a lot of them have that element of like, you know, heat, you know, if the heat's around the corner, anything that I got, the I can leave in 30 seconds flat, you know what I'm saying? Jack Foley here and out of sight, he knows that, man, you know, I'm, I'm the best bank robber, but, you know, it's going to end back up in the joint, you know what I'm saying? And when I get out, I'm going to do this same thing again. That's all I know. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So the kind of, there's a term for it in, in writing, in writing circles, screenwriting circles. I forget what it's the inevitable outcome. Okay. Yeah. It's a bad outcome, but it's inevitable. You, you want it to happen because you know, it has to happen. We know he has to get caught even at the end of the film where he's kind of in a standoff with Karen and, and she says, Jack, are you up there? She's already shot uh, Maurice. Yeah. And and by the way, in the beginning of the or in the uh, about in the second act of the movie where Clooney comes out of jail and he meets Maurice in Detroit and they kind of have a standoff It's Maurice and his white boy Bob and then his buddy and Jack and uh, and white boy Bob says something to them. And then Buddy says, uh, so what else is it that you do, white boy Bob, other than shoot off the big mouth? <laughs> and what does white boy Bob do at the end of the movie? He shoots off his big mouth, right? <laughs> falling up the stairs and blows his own damn head off. But, yep, boop. <laughs> but at the end of the film, you know, when he has this standoff with Lopez and, and she says, Jack, are you up there? And he says, yeah. And he says, Karen, this is it. There's no more timeouts. Stop. Put your hands in the air. Jack, I know you're up there. Shit. Where's Kenneth? He's up here. He's dead. I'm going to come out. He says, you know, you're going to have to do this because I'm not going back to prison. So he says, hey, I'll put the mask on. That way you can kind of pretend it's not me. Mm. And so the inevitability of either you're going to have to kill me or I'm not or I'm going to get out of here, but I'm not going back to prison. I'm not going back to the joint. I'm not going to die as an old man, you know, behind bars. And he tells her, he says, if I go back, it's 
it's probably 30 years for me. And, you know, at that point, he's he's going to be 70, you know. Yeah. So he does see that inevitability. But some other films moving into modern day, just a few more. Um, the movie Focus, that movie with Will Smith and Margot Robbie. Oh, yeah. Now, wasn't it also one? Am, am, am I confusing it with another one? Wasn't there a similar film with uh, Will Smith and Charlize Theron? What am I thinking of? Well, you're thinking of uh, Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my bad. Proceed, my bad. <laughs> Will Smith has made some whack movies, yo. Let's just go ahead and get that out there. <laughs> but that movie is about grifters and con people and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, Widows, uh, Viola Davis, the aforementioned of Viola Davis, uh, Liam Neeson, Cynthia Revo, Daniel Kaluuya. Uh, Michelle Rodriguez and Elizabeth Debicki. That's actually pretty good. It's directed by a guy named Steve Steve McQueen. Uh, of, hmm. Obviously not the the late dead Steve McQueen, but, right? <laughs> uh, uh, but he directed that one. That one's actually pretty good. That came out just a few years ago, uh, but that one was worth seeing. Mm-hmm. And this is also too like you were talking about earlier with you know comparisons with Tarantino. You know movies with large ensemble cast that are handled. To use your your uh, your descriptor adroitly, you know, like the oceans movies and traffic, you know, where these all these you know a plot lines and b plot lines and c plot lines and they're being interweave inter- interwoven and they're interwoven yeah, yeah. And threaded together. Uh, true romance, you know, where it's mostly Clarence in Alabama's movie, but you know that you get scenes with the father and with the gangsters, with you know with uh, Dennis Hopper and with Christopher Walken. You get some scenes with the cops. You get scenes with uh, the roommates, the the drugged out roommates or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you also like uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross, mm. um, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, PTA movies like that. Um, Little Miss Sunshine, The Royal Tenenbaums, and then of course you know probably the granddaddy out of granddaddy of the granddaddy of them all, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also. One last thing, and, I, and this is kind of a criticism for me, and I just want to ask you what your thoughts were, because this is your first time seeing the movie uh, just just mere weeks ago. Right. What did you think of the ending? Hmm. After Clooney is shot, and he's arrested, and he's going back to prison, and they put him in the back of the paddy wagon, and Karen is going to drive him. What did you think of the ending when Samuel Jackson's character shows up as Hajera Henry? Hmm. You know, I thought, you know, initially that the the door was open, kind of like what the reviewer was saying in the article you mentioned earlier, you know, that, hey, you know, even though there might not be a sequel in actual time, you know, like that door is still open in a literary sense to like we could we can imagine as the audience like, mm-hmm. you know, this, this is another uh, another novel, if you will. You know what I'm saying? But I did kind of think that the ending still worked. You know, because it was like one of those one of those bittersweet type of endings that one of those endings where both of the protagonists, you know, usually romantic leads, they know that this could never be. So they have that knowing between them, Mm -hmm. that that kind of knowing tension, you know, Mm -hmm. and it works in that way. It's like it's as if (laughs) it's as if all Jennifer Lopez had to say, hey, Jack, it's Chinatown. It's Chinatown. We we could never have this. You oh know? wow! And, <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that just works, and you're just like, eh, 
It, it is what it is. So it's a way of not having a fairy tale ending, but you know as well as they do that it can never be. And that in and of itself is almost like life sometimes where it's you have to be satisfied with the conclusion that has occurred. You know, it may not be the one that you wanted, but it's the one that has to be. So I had no problem with the ending of the movie, man. And then when Samuel Jackson came in there, it was just almost like in a sense of you can imagine yourself, you can imagine what the next movie might be, you know? That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.